Welcome to Cold Case MHS, where real education meets real life. I'm your host, Randy Hubbard, an instructor of Cold Case MHS. And I'm your co-host, Liam, and this is Ashlyn. And we thank you for listening. Most people wake up each day not really knowing what's in store for them. They wake up to the sound of an annoying alarm clock buzzing in their head. Or maybe they wake up to the warm rays of sunlight peeking through the blinds, hitting them in the face. Some will wake up ready to go, and others take a while to get the engine running. But all will eventually get moving. Now everyone's day is different. Some will be excited about the day and ready to go, and others, not so much. Most will have a routine that will get them through that day. But what happens if the routine changes? What happens if you take a different route home or stop somewhere you've never been before? What happens if someone new comes into your life? What if you cross paths with someone strange or even someone you thought you knew, but maybe you didn't? In most cases, nothing will happen. Or even in some, good things might come out of it. But that doesn't always happen. What happens when you cross paths with a monster and the sunlight turns to darkness? In many cases, that monster will be brought out of the shadows to face justice. But in others, the demon stays hidden in the frozen chambers of a cold case. Today, there are over 10,000 cold cases in Ohio. Compare the nation, which is over 250,000, and that number is only increasing every year by 6,000. These statistics that have been mentioned come from the Ohio Attorney General's page and from a study done by the National Institute of Justice, which took a deep dive into the number of cold cases and the reasons they have gone and stayed cold. Now that you guys have worked on your cases in class, what do these numbers mean to you? I think these numbers mean that we as a young generation have to step up when it comes to being a more involved in the community and being more involved with how these cases are handled so that we can help out the police officers that are involved because these police officers, they do have a lot that's going on. So if we can help out any way that we can, uh, whether that's building up more cold case programs with more people, um, it's something like that that we can do. I also think that they have to look at organizations like ours as possible assets, not necessarily people that are trying to get in the way of the investigation, because that is not what we're trying to do. We would just like to be able to say, hey, we're here for you. We'll take some of the information that you do not have time to work on and reevaluate it and give you some type of report that they could possibly use to move on with the case. I know that that attitude change is going to take a while, but maybe one day we'll be able to work together to close some of these cases. Today we'll be looking at four cases that have gone cold in Ohio, three we have briefly looked into to try and find reoccurring themes of why these have went cold, and one we took a deeper dive into. Our first three cases are about Frances Golden, Jason Knighton, and Joshua Starcher. La Frances Golden was a 27-year-old, and she was martyred on December 24th of 2012. She lived in an apartment in Dayton and had a three-year-old daughter. She had multiple ongoing disputes with multiple people, and when she was found, there was a shell casing found on the couch, and she had been murdered in front of her daughter. The next case that we looked into was the case of Jason Knighton. He was 16 years old, and he was murdered on September 4, 2010, in the early evening. He lived in the suburbs of Akron, Ohio, and was killed after an altercation while unloading groceries 
in front of his house. A third case is Joshua Starker. He was killed just a day after his birthday on February 11, 2011. He was killed in Palmer, Ohio. He was last seen at 12.30 by a few people. Uh, he was seen le leaving quickly, and he was soon uh, later found dead on the street on Vinegar Road. These cases have a lot in common. They took place in the early 2010s or around that time. This means that the technology isn't as good as it is now, so it was a lot harder for people to find information about these cases. And most of these incidents happened in a closed area or where there weren't any witnesses. And all the deaths were by gunshot, which can be at times really hard to track. A brief disclaimer, nothing said in this podcast is a knock on police stations in charge of investigating any of these cases or the work that they are currently doing or will do in the future. We are simply trying to get these stories out and provide information on why these cases have gone cold. Now going into our main case is Jeffrey Risner. Jeffrey Risner was born November 15th, 1955. He was a bigger dude, around 6 foot, 275 pounds. Immediately that told us the man who took Jeffrey's life also to be a, a man of, of larger size. He lived in 116 Palmer Street, Bostoria, Ohio, which is a lower income area with a high population density, so a lot of people living uh, in a small area. And he was killed on March 2nd, 2006. They talk about how big Jeffrey was, and for him to be that large and for somebody to be able to subdue him does tell us a little bit about the suspect. They mention the fact that one of the suspects could be really large, but what else could that mean? So, like you said, it could mean that there's one one killer who is just very large, or it could mean that there were two or like a group of people that attacked him. For example, like one could subdue him and then one could come in from behind and could be responsible for those stab wounds around his neck. And also the fact that he was beaten too. So he had two different ways that he was attacked. So he was stabbed and beaten, which does kind of give you the idea that maybe there were multiple people. Jeffrey Risner lived with his ex-girlfriend's grandkids and took them to school every morning. When he didn't appear to do this one morning, people got worried and they eventually found him dead in his own garage. This garage was detached from his house. So according to one of the articles that we found, police believed that anybody who possibly could have been involved in the murdering of Jeffrey Risner, they would have to have known him or he would have had to let them into his garage. He was beaten and stabbed to death after a physical altercation and due to the location and timing, they were able to pull up one possible suspect, but then he was eventually marked off because of an alibi that he had. Also in some of these lower socioeconomic areas, the relationship between the police and the citizens may be a little bit worn on the edges. There may have been a little bit of mistrust or things that happened in the past. And it also could be just a plain, I don't want to get involved attitude by some of the citizens. Uh, another one of the attitudes could be is that they, when you go to the police, a lot of the people will deem them as snitches. And when you are deemed a snitch, then you have you've basically lost all your friends in the community. And so now you've lost all your trust with your friends. You've lost everything, all because you felt like you were doing the right thing. Another thing, uh, like just kind of going off of what Ben said earlier in the recording, in addition to all of that stuff, they could be nervous to go and talk to police because they don't want to be like involved in the case. They don't want to be suspected because sometimes in situations like this, if you do share some information, you get put on a suspect list because it's something that either the police couldn't find out themselves or they hadn't heard before. There were a couple of roadblocks in our investigation. Firstly, when we tried to work with the police, they said it was an open case and they weren't able to give us much information on it, which is completely fine. Not only that, when we tried to call 
the neighbors around Jeffrey Risner's area, they weren't really willing to talk with us. They were also very hard to get a hold of since they were a little older and it could be possible they did not even have the technology to that compared with us. The one person that we did call immediately hung up after we introduced ourselves, which already put a huge dent in our investigation. Now this is extremely prevalent in big cities and small rural precincts. Why do you think this is happening, especially in today's world? I think now, I mean, we talked about some statistics earlier about like how many cases there were. I think with just like such a big influx of cases and just piling like one on top of the other and over and over again, I think some things kind of get pushed to the bottom and police departments, some are like understaffed, underfunded. So it's difficult for them to be able to get to all those old cases. Additionally, I just wanted to touch on like how some of the cases that we talk about in cold case are older than the age of technology. It would be easier for a police department to look at a case that all of their stuff is on a computer, it's right in front of them, as opposed to something that's stuck in an old file cabinet where they have to go look through an evidence room for evidence that's 50, 60 years old. So I just think it's more difficult for those cases to get touched on. Going off of what Ashlyn said about the whole underfunding thing, uh, when you look at kind of the stigma around police departments nowadays, it doesn't have the best reputation. It comes with that. Uh, they're, they're not really getting the people help that they're used to getting, um, whether that's money or that's people coming in. So they're having to make a lot of cuts. And with those cuts, that's departments being cut, that's police officers being cut, because they're not seeing the people come in that they're used to seeing, and they're not seeing the help that would always come in originally. This incident also happened in the early 2000s, so there was very little social media, so we could barely find anything on Jeffrey Risner or his associates. We don't know where this man had worked, and the only thing that we knew is that he had a lot of familial issues. There are a couple cases regarding his wife or ex-wife, and that too is very unclear about how they were all related. For all we, for all we could find out, it's just someone who had the last name that felt very similar to Jeffrey Risner. And we couldn't find any records of where he worked, which if we did, we could have found a lot more information about Jeffrey Risner and it may and it may have led us to having a bigger lead. But other than that, we have nothing to go off of. So I heard them talk about time, the time the police have to work on it, the time period that these cases went cold, that it's difficult the older the case is because of resources and protocols and things like that. I was just listening to a police officer on the Paper Ghost podcast, season one, which is a great podcast, by the way, and he was talking about how finding missing people or establishing timelines of a murderer are much easier today than they were 10 or 15 years ago. And you wonder why. Well, that's because of cell phones, social media, and things like that. Many people's tracks are followed pretty easily on social media, and we have cell phone towers that phones ping off of and things like that. For example, Gabby Pedito case in 2021, you could literally track her almost every movement and when she was going somewhere or when she was changing directions or when she was in a new place, but just looking at her Instagram. Cameras also were shown on traffic lights and things like that of Brian Laundrie actually driving her car all the way back to Florida without Gabby being in the car. So it was easy to track him down and easy to track where she was the last time. Most recently, the Idaho University murders. You could easily track the victims, the killer, how many times he'd been there, all that kind of stuff. 
just by technology today. So that's one big thing that has made a huge difference in some of these cases, the time period they're in, the technology that we have now. But you do see in the news there are cases that are being solved from 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago that we thought went cold, and they did for all those times. But now with new technology, especially DNA technology, we can now solve those cases. So after looking at all these cases, we kind of came up with four main points for the most uh, prominent reasons why cases go cold. So for the first one, people are unwilling to talk out of fear. So people will not talk to any kind of reporters, police departments, or private investigators because uh, they fear that they say something that they may know because they're a witness that they too, they could, they could come back and hurt them or you know possibly worse, the, the person that killed Jeffrey or any of the other cases could possibly you know try and silence them. Our second one is that there are so many cold cases out there that it's hard for police departments to kind of keep keep track and keep up with them. Like I said earlier, there are over 250,000 cases in the, in the nation that are cold, and that number increases by 6,000 every year, so it's hard for police departments to come back some 40 years to try and find any new information. And it's our third point is similar. Many cases happen when there's very little media coverage, so it's hard to find any new information or try and find any kind of old reports on these cases where... They can get new information and try and find new leads. And it's one of the main reasons they go cold and you know stay in a, in a lockbox for so many years. Our fourth point is similar to our second. We were, had a, we were fortunate enough to talk to two forensic experts, uh, Sharon McCollum and Angelina Hartman. They were both saying that after the first couple of days of investigating, it's hard to find any new information. After the first 48 hours, the percentage of these cases being solved and then being cold drops dramatically. It's hard for police departments to come back to a scene after multiple weeks at a time to try and find any new information. So Cheryl Mack, as they call her, is a crime analyst, professor, author, and TV personality from Atlanta. Cheryl's a busy person, but she never hesitates to answer my questions or talk to our students. Mack is one of those main reasons that we have Cold Case MHS. With her expertise, she was able to convince our administration that it was going to be okay if we looked into these cold cases. She always told me the more eyes on the case, even if it's not law enforcement, the better. Angeline Hartman is an Emmy-winning journalist, a true crime podcaster, and the communication director for the Missing and Exploited Children's Organization. She has always given up her time to answer our questions or to help with our students, and we really appreciate that. She has been crucial in giving us insights into how to look into true crimes, what kind of things should we look for, where should we go for information, and it has been great for myself and my students. Having access to individuals like this, like Angeline and Mac, are huge for our success and the success of other organizations working on cold cases. If anybody has any information on the case of Jeffrey Risner, they can visit the Fostoria Police Department at 213 South Main Street, Fostoria, Ohio. They're also able to contact Fostoria, Ohio at 419-435-8573, or they can email at policechief at fostoriaohio.gov. We understand that some people will not want to talk to police, and if you would like, you can contact us at coldcase at masonohioschools.com. You can call us at 513-398-5025, or you're able to find us on social media such as Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for listening to Season 3, Episode 1, Someone Close. The artwork for this podcast was produced by our Mason High School Design Studio interns. The studio does work with the public, so if you have any need for artwork for your business, please give them a call or send them a message. 
Their contact information will be listed in the show notes. Cold Case MHS, Monsters and Demons, is produced and edited by myself and my Cold Case students. The theme song, Believe Me, is written, recorded, performed, and produced by current MHS student Alexis Dahl. Tune in next time to hear the story of a beloved father and pillar of his community who was gunned down in cold blood. His case is unsolved, but the unusual fight in the community continues. Join us in Episode 2, The Long Dispute. you end.